millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Before we start the show today, I just want to let you all know that next Wednesday, October the 10th, here in Washington, D.C., Deconstructed will be putting on its very first live show. Woohoo! We have an amazing panel of guests, Senator Jeff Merkley, Our Revolution President Nina Turner, Congressman Ro Khanna, and CNN analyst and former Bernie Sanders press secretary, Simone Sanders. I'll be interviewing them all in front of a live audience about the future of the left and whether the Democrats in Congress will actually get radical if they come out on top after the midterms. To get tickets and be in that audience, head to The Intercept's Facebook page and click on the events section. Doors open at 6 o'clock on the 10th of October at the National Union Building in downtown D.C. OK, that's done. Time to start the show. It's not so much a question of, am I going to do this thing to upset people? My mere existence upsets certain people. It's not that I'm deciding to be political. I'm deciding to be me. My guest today has been on the front cover of Time magazine, which included him in their list of the 100 most influential people in the world. The New York Times magazine put him on their front cover last month, calling him the everyman. 20 years ago, he and I were in school together in North London. But these days, Riz Ahmed is an actor, a musician, an activist, whose new film, Venom, a Marvel movie, is out this week. Thank you for bringing us collectively to this moment. It is a moment that so many have dreamed of claiming. History starts today. That was the voice of Riz Ahmed, playing evil billionaire genius Carlton Drake in Venom. Last year, Riz became the first actor of South Asian descent and the first Muslim to win an Emmy when he picked up the award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series for his starring role in the hugely powerful HBO drama The Night Of. But it's not just his acting that's earned him plaudits. He hasn't been afraid to speak out on issues ranging from the lack of representation on screen to ISIS and radicalization to the refugee crisis in Syria. Earlier, I caught up with him while he was in L.A. in the middle of an exhausting press tour for Venom. And we talked politics, religion, art, identity. Riz, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let me begin by asking you something that I'll admit, Riz, has been at the back of my mind for a long time. You and I were both born in the UK to South Asian immigrant parents. We both grew up in North London, both went to the same school, acted in the same place, went to the same university. How did you end up as an Emmy Award winning actor with Kate Hudson as your love interest and a role in Star Wars? And I end up as a journalist who has to cover Donald Trump for a living. Where did I go wrong, Riz? Um... I wish I could tell you, man. I guess uh, I guess uh, you're better at um, speaking your own mind, and I'm uh, better at uh, kind of uh, hiding 
They're another oh, characters. Oh, yeah. Maybe oh, yeah. that's good, all it is. Yeah. Good save. Uh, talking of other characters, uh, you're, you're doing amazingly in your acting career. Well done. Uh, a lot of us are very proud of your achievements. Uh, I want to touch on some provocative subjects with you today, politics, identity, religion. But before I do, you've got a new movie out. That's why you're in LA. I'm talking to you. You're in LA. I'm in DC. Venom. It's a Marvel movie. And as a Marvel fanboy, I'm very excited to see you in a Marvel movie now. Uh, you're the villain opposite Tom Hardy, who's in the anti-hero title role. Um, you're playing a billionaire evil genius again, because weren't you a billionaire evil genius in the last Jason Bourne movie too? Well, it's interesting you should say that because I don't see either of those characters as being evil. And I'd say particularly the character in Bourne, which is, uh, you know, doesn't take place in a kind of comic book universe, which is, you know, even more nuanced and grounded uh, than even this one, which I think, you know, Venom is quite uncharacteristically uh, kind of gritty and and focused on the shades of grey. But you're not a good guy in either of the films. Well, I don't know if I buy that. For me, Ooh, I, I think that I am the good guy. You know, uh, to play a character is to want to be able to is to is to defend them. You know, and I I honestly think that my character's got good intentions. Look, we've ruined this planet. We've brought it to the brink of ecological collapse. It's uh, you know Agreed. it's going to get to a point when humanity can't survive here. So we've got to find another home. And that's what your character Colton Drake, I believe his name is. Colton Drake is trying to do that exactly. So he's just trying to look for another planet we can all live on. And obviously, there's lots of um, real life examples of people that are doing similar things. And you know, lots of billionaire industrialists sending rockets into space to try and explore it and enhance our life or extend the potential for our species existence so you know is yeah. that bad i don't even know if that's bad well yeah. if we're going to get into a discussion about elon musk that's a whole different discussion about what's bad is uh, talking of born and spy movies you said recently in a gq magazine interview that you'd be up for playing the first brown bond i actually uh, didn't say that oh did you not say that no no it's, i thought uh, it was put strange. to you and you said you'd be up for that yeah okay. no i mean if not to uh kind of uh Listen, knock it down. I'm not for playing. If they I'm, came knocking on your door, you wouldn't say no, would you? You know, I just feel like I am game to play any character that is three-dimensional, fully yeah. formed, nuanced, th- that kind of stretches the mold, that subverts people's expectations. And uh, the interesting thing about being a South Asian actor is that the gift and the curse is that there are many roles which would be able to subvert people's expectations because if you belong to a, a group or a minority that's often not been very visible, been a little bit marginalized in terms of in dominant culture and in our storytelling, then there are many roles you can play that that make people sit up and go, oh, well, mm. I wasn't sure I'd see a brown dude in that role. So yeah, that one of those is maybe James Bond. Another one is Hamlet. Another one is Carlton yeah, Drake Hamlet in Venom. Netflix, you know? Yeah, so I guess for me, it's more about does it challenge me and push me as an actor? And secondly, does it challenge the culture and does it push the culture forwards? If you did do Bond, the reason I mentioned Bond is would you do Bond as, as Bond and you just happen I to do be a brown you, dude? Maybe. I would do it as you. I think no. that there is no one that I know well, that I'd, is I'd, more. Well, I'd, I'd a debate my way to deadly, defeating the baddies. Suave, I have no physical deadly, and, uh, and yeah. I will debate you. Yeah. Um, no, because I thought of Jamal Bond, who wouldn't be able to do like the shaken, not stirred Martin. He'd be like getting a juice or a mocktail. I can tell you spent hours in the mirror <laughs> practicing this and developing this character. Wait, I'm living you, through you vicariously. Hassan. We're all, all the like brown you. men are living through you, Riz. That's the point. And let's just talk seriously about the, what, the progress you've made in your career. Black and brown actors from the UK constantly and rightly complain about the lack of roles. Great line by you just now about the gift and the curse, the barriers for entry to them in, in, in the UK television and film industry. Many of them uh, flee to the US. You have done very well in the US. Why do you think that is? It's not as if America doesn't have its own problems of racism 
racism, discrimination, glass ceilings, both across the board and specifically in Hollywood? Well, I think it's a factor of a, of a couple of things. One is about the myths and stories that we tell ourselves as countries. And the other one is just about the scale of the two countries. So I think uh, the industry in America is just bigger. It's a bigger population. It can support lots of different niche industries um, and, and also just has more opportunities, just has more jobs, right? So that's just a kind of, in absolute terms, in just you know raw numbers, there are more roles to go up for. So even if the proportion of roles that could be played by, say, an ethnic minority or a woman or a disabled person are the same in the UK and in the US, there's just a greater number of them in the US. So one's just about scale. I think the other, reason for it is um, America's kind of idea itself, its national story mm. is one of, you know, we're an immigrant nation. It's inclusive. It's the the salad bowl, the melting pot, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You know, it's a multicultural nation. It's a migrant nation. And um, although the reality in terms of, you know, how different groups may be treated under that one flag, it, you know, can be very yeah. patchy and inconsistent. But the myth. Um, the, the, the myth, the story um, you know, that America tells about itself is very multicultural. And so that means that the stories that get told in America and come out of America often make a bit more room for that. Um, whereas in Britain, I, I find actually in London, I think is the most multicultural city in the world. Yes. But in Britain, I think the national story is in dire need of updating. And um, the story we tell is about, you know, lords and ladies kind of running around in bonnets and top hats <laughs> uh, and the landed gentry and, and a time. And it's you going know, the wrong the way in the Brexit era. It's going backwards, it feels well, yeah, like. Yeah, it just feels like. I'm back in the UK. It just, it feels well, like. I don't know. I think it's a very mixed picture, actually. I don't think you can generalize. I think, you know, in some senses, there's more visibility than ever for marginalized groups. And there's also a backlash against that, you know, as, as we see the kind of the death rattles of, of white supremacy in, in many ways is, is how people explain, you know, these mm. rising tides yeah, of xenophobia and, and, and patriotism. And on that note, I want to talk about what you call code switching. Explain to us what that is exactly. Well, I think code switching is, you know, like we're talking to each other on the phone like this and we both grew up in, in similar neighborhoods and there's a kind of ease in which how we're able to talk to uh, to each other. And But if you were to speak to your mom or I was speak to my dad, we might speak in a different language altogether. We, d we mm. certainly change our behavior. We might speak about different things. And again, if we found ourselves in um, in a different kind of setting, you know, we would we would change our behavior and our vocabulary in, 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 in a slightly different way. And it's something that, you know, we all do from day to day, you know, whether you're in parent mode or husband mode, that's, you know, there are different sides of, of Mehdi Hassan come out. I like to think you're in husband mode with me right now. Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, I'm definitely feeling very taken care of. And um, I, I wish we weren't so far apart physically. <laughs> well, you're right. Very close to me in my ear. There's a microphone very close to me as well. So you're closer than you think. And so code switching is just about adapting and uh you know from one context to another and it's something that certainly i did a lot growing up you know growing up in in one kind of part of london and going to school in a very different part of london you and, and i went to a very posh private school i should say just be very clear for the listeners we went to a posh white private, white majority private school which was switching to become very brown as we got there yeah yeah we did um but i mean i speak for myself but i didn't come from a very posh white uh, neighborhood or background or social circle. And so there was certainly a big set, you know, amount of code switching that happened between home and school. And then there was code switching again, as I would kind of skip classes in school to go and hang out with my kind of rude boy mates who, you know, in Harrow or whatever, or, or, or uh, Neesden. And, uh, and so, 
So yeah, there's certainly a lot of code switching, and for in, me, it was as extreme as even changing costumes. You know, wearing a shalwar kameez at home, a school uniform, and then you just change into your like, you know, were you one of those kids? Who, were you one of those kids who was embarrassed to wear shalwar kameez outside the house? Like, if you went to a wedding, you didn't want any of your white friends to see you. Uh, no, it wasn't so much that. It was just that. Um, I, I mean, there was just it was just a different culture altogether outside of the house. So at home, the Pakistani culture was shalwar kameez, but outside of the home, hanging out with Pakistani guys of my of my own age, um, yeah, we might wear shalwar kameez, but we wear it with Reebok classics, you know, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a fake Versace jacket or something. So um, yeah, there was a, certainly a lot of code switching from one context to the next. So just sticking with that, in the recent New York Times Magazine interview that you did recently, and I would urge everyone listening to this to read it, it's a fascinating profile of Riz. Uh, you mentioned code switching, and you talk about how uh, we and I changes and shifts constantly, especially when we talk about uh, when we talk about the West versus the so-called mother countries, the Asian or African countries that our parents immigrated from. You say in that piece, we are the inheritors of the scars of empire, but also the spoils of empire. And that kind of inside-outside state is totally ingrained in us, which is why at a time like now, where everybody's being asked to pick a side, everything is binary. It's a confusing time to be us. And res- that really resonated with me, because not surprisingly, it's exactly how I feel too. And in fact, isn't it the case that it's not just that we're asked to pick a side, but both sides, both parts of our identity, call them East or West for simplicity, are insisting we pick them and are suggesting that we'd be betraying our identity if we don't pick one over the other. And that's quite disorienting and frustrating for a lot of us. Yeah, I think that kind of simplistic binary perspective is one that is propagated by the loudest voices on both sides. Yeah. I think you start getting this situation where, where you know, some of the louder voices and some of the narratives we hear more often are about, you know, pick a side. And, you know, actually that's, that's the opening tr- uh, line of my um, releasing some music next week and, and that's the first line is pick a side, do or die. That's your new single, Magambo. Just to- that's right, yeah. Why did you pick Magambo as the title? Because as an 80s, as a child of the 80s, you watched <laughs> Mr. India growing up. Magambo was the famous villain played by the late, great Amrish Puri. Why, why pick his name for the Yeah, title? it's interesting. You know, I felt like, um, well, first of all, I, well, his sisters, there's just a moment in the track where I say Magambo Khushua, which means <laughs> Magambo is happy. happy. And I just like this idea of like, you know, unleashing a kind of, villainy and like reveling in in allowing yourself to be a bit you know irresponsible I think there's a pressure on a lot of us as minorities you know to be the good immigrant and I don't know I just kind of think that there's something kind of like liberating about allowing yourself to, 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 to be a bit bad maybe that was part of it when I was recording the track I just said Mogambo Khushua because it's just a very well-known catchphrase right yeah. And it's something that people say kind of ironically, which means Mogambo is very happy. And this is what the supervillain would say when, uh, I don't know, one of his loyal soldiers would jump into a bath of acid just to, uh, you know, show Mogambo. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He's loyal. Bogembo. Kushua. And, uh, and I just said it in a kind of throwaway uh, sense, but then when I thought about naming the track, I realized that the film that Mogambo is from, it's called Mr. India, it's about the search for an invisible formula, a formula that renders you invisible. And I just thought there's something kind of interesting about this idea of visibility, right? Because in some senses, minorities are more visible now than ever, mm. you know, in culture. But there's also this rising kind of um, calls to try and make us all disappear, you know, and to vanish us. So I don't know, I just thought this is interesting, this kind of dichotomy and this double-edged sword, everything's happening around the idea of visibility right now. And I just thought, oh, well, maybe it wasn't a throwaway word. Maybe my subconscious threw that up because this whole track is about how, you know, people want to get rid of us, but we won't disappear. No, we won't disappear. And you, you've you not been someone who's ever done any kind of disappearing acts, no matter what stage of your career. I mean, you wrote a Guardian essay about being constantly stopped at passport control, which everyone I know who looks like you or me uh, read and identified with. Uh, you also gave a lecture to the UK Parliament on the need for diversity, in which you made some pretty provocative remarks about the need for young men to have an alternative narrative to the ISIS narrative. You also did some very political rapping on Jimmy Fallon's show, I remember, after the Charlottesville uh, killing, which uh, upset a lot of conservatives. All the mans that want to say that my religion has to change, that we're stuck in a bygone age, it's time to set the vinyl straight. What has made you over the years decide to stick your neck out time and time again in this very political way when other actors, other musicians are keeping their heads down? Is this part of your creative process or just that you're a very political person? You know, it's interesting you say this because I don't think that there's so much a decision that's been made about being political. First of all, the idea that there is any art that isn't political is one that I take issue with. You know, uh, any story that you tell, any piece of art is putting forwards a perspective and a point of view on the world. Right. Yeah. And that's what politics is. It's just a point of view in the world. If you are telling a story about uh, where there's just only men who have speaking roles in the story, you know, that's that's offering a perspective. You're prioritizing certain points of view over others. I guess that's small p political. But you know what I mean? There are a lot of actor celebrities who won't take a small, position. But I think, but I they think, won't take but, a position on what's in the news. They wouldn't go and say well, anything. No, well, that, well, I was going to go on. move on to that. So one, in terms of the work and in terms of this idea that some work is political and some is not political, I, I strongly take issue with that. I think that that's a really kind of sneaky strategy to try and marginalize mm. any pieces of art that subvert uh, you know the dominant narratives and actually that's what the role of art is I wouldn't say that there's art and then there's political art I'd say there's entertainment and then there's art and art and the role of art is to challenge our lazy I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying what I am mm. pushing back against is but there are artists 
who I've interviewed who will not comment on anything in the news because they don't want to upset their fans. They don't want to. They know they've got conservative and liberal fans, and right, they don't right, want to say right. anything I that might be interpreted. Saying. You're not that kind of person. Yeah, you yeah, go I out and you. say, "I'm going to do a rap about you know two days after Charlottesville." That's clearly going to alienate the conservative viewers of Jimmy Fallon's show. Whoa. So I'm just wondering what drives you when you do that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, again, I do think that some people don't actually have a choice. Like politics chooses you. If you're yeah. born into a, born into a certain body in a certain place in a certain well, time, so. it's not so much a question of am I going to do this thing to upset people my mere existence upsets certain people <laughs> so what am I going to do just stop existing so it's not so much that I'm trying to like throw a fist up and stick it to the man I'm just trying to stand up tall with dignity and just look people in the eye you know, and say, I'm here, I'm a human being. And that means mm. I get to talk about my experience. And now if you're a wealthy middle-class girl from the suburbs and you're releasing music about being taken to prom in a limousine that your dad's paid for and partying with your friends, that's your reality. My reality is different to that. My reality is getting stopped at airports. My reality is also get, getting to be in big movies. My reality is the kind of dichotomy and the contradiction of getting, you know, searched before I get on an airplane. And when I get on the airplane, I'm on the cover of the in-flight magazine. So that's, <laughs> that is no less valid than going to prom. That's no less valid no, no, as something to make art so, about. So for me, it's not that I'm deciding to be political. I'm deciding to be me. And politics choose, chose me. Politics chose you. Politics chooses anyone who feels that their very existence is questioned as whether it's valid or not. See, there's thousands of angry young men that are lost, sidelined in the economy, a marginal cost. They think there's no point in putting ballots up in the box. They got no place in the system and no faith in his cogs. Easy targets to be getting brainwashed by these knobs who say that spilling innocent blood is pleasing a god. Sadiq Khan uh, often says he's not the Muslim mayor of London or a Muslim politician. He's a politician or mayor who happens to be Muslim. Is that how you would describe yourself? You're not a Muslim actor. You're an actor who happens to be South Asian, happens to be Muslim. And the reason I ask is because it's easy to say, and I, I do this, people say to me, oh, you're a Muslim journalist. Well, sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm just a journalist. It's easy to say you don't want to be pigeonholed by your race or your religion. But when there's so few people like us around in public life, we can't help but pigeonhole ourselves, can we? There's so much pressure on us to be the spokesperson for all the people who look mm. like us or share our beliefs or backgrounds, but don't have the public platforms that you and I do. Depends whether it's, it's about, you know, pit being pigeonholed or yeah. just owning who you are. Yeah. You know, if being described as a Muslim actor means that I'm only allowed to play characters who are explicitly Muslim or tell stories that are interesting to, uh, you know, the headlines when it comes to Islam, then I don't want to be described as a Muslim actor. You know, if, it's, if it feels like a kind of qualifier, if that it's a qualifying adjective and it somehow limits me in some way and, it, you know, allows me to be less than fully complicated and fully human and, and to just be an actor... Um, without being encumbered by that, then I don't want to be described in that way. But um, if you, if you, if you, if it's just something that you, you know, it's describing me in that way, uh, without kind of limiting me in that way, then I've got no no problem with it, to be honest. What about and, the pressure side? Do you feel pressure now that you're one of the, you know, the first, you're the first Muslim male actor to win that Emmy of South Asian descent? Do you get this pressure that, okay, now I have to deliver for all those people who either identify, you know, I was interviewing on this show Ilhan Omar recently, who's going to become the first Muslim woman congresswoman uh, in January when she gets elected in November, the first woman in a headscarf in Congress, the first Somali-American in Congress. She was talking about, you know, how many different communities lay claim to her. Do you feel pressure that, you know, you are one of these few people from these communities doing well in this walk of life? 
I feel privileged, man, that there are people who connect to my work beyond just being entertained by it. I feel mm. privileged that, that, you know, that, you know, there have been occasions where um, I've made work and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's been moving for people and entertaining for people, but it's also somehow more than that. It's affirming them on a quite fundamental level, which it shouldn't have to really. But, you know, it's this idea that like, well, if I see you out there and then I, it's somehow I feel like my experience is valid, which is kind of tragic in a way that people um, need to be reminded that. But but that's the reality of this kind of quite, quite hostile kind of environment that, that, that we can live in at times. So I feel really proud of that, man. And I feel really privileged that there are people who connect to my work on that level and it inspires people. And it feels exciting, to be honest, to be part of something new, to be part of change. You know, well, it feels, they, feels they good do to feel not that be someone you, who's just perpetuating the status quo. I, I, I feel like excited to be part of a shift that is happening in our culture, in our societies. And I feel proud of that. No, they do feel that way, Riz. When I mentioned to friends of mine that I was interviewing you for this podcast, people who would never listen to this podcast because they're not interested in politics are like, oh, I've got to hear, I've got to hear Riz. Because they do identify with you. And let me ask you this then on that note. I interviewed Francis Fukuyama recently for my Al Jazeera English show. He's got a new book out on identity politics. He's very critical of identity politics. And I decided, it's not out yet, it's coming out shortly. I decided to ask the guy who wrote The End of History about crazy rich Asians. <laughs> I asked him, you know, does he think that's a good thing? A lot of people in the Asian American media are loving it. And he basically said, no, he didn't ever grow up needing any Asian role models on screen. It didn't help shape his life. Why do you think he's wrong? Why do you think diversity on screen in public life is so important? You know, it's interesting. I think many people are kind of fearful of identity politics yeah. um, because they think it breeds tribalism. And I think the mm. reality is that it can. I think there is a danger of that. Yeah. What we're starting to see, you know, with the kind of democratization of like media tools and the fragmentation of the media landscape and, you know, the shift, this wider demographic shift that's happening in a lot of societies is you know, lots of people are saying, well, I, I want my story to be told. My story deserves to be told. And I can tell it now as well. I don't need to ask permission. There aren't as many gatekeepers to tell my story. That's a great thing. I think it can start to become a slightly uh, limiting thing if it's approached with the perspective of like, okay, I want my team to win. Mm. Like, like, we're winning right now. You know, if it starts to feel quite kind of insular. Yeah, um, but I think but that's if it's just, just, a, if it's just, just celebrating a, a movie with an all Asian cast, that's yeah, a good thing, right? Yeah, that is a good thing. And I think the problem, it only becomes problematic if you assume that Moonlight is only a win for black people and that Crazy Rich Asians is only a win for Asian people, yeah. right? Then that becomes a problem because then it starts to become a strange kind of zero sum game. And you're like, well, everyone can't have a piece of this pie. Otherwise, no one's <laughs> going to have another pie. But if you start to think of it in terms of Crazy Rich Asians being a massive hit is a win for all of us, then there's nothing... There's no problem there, you know, and the, and the reality, I believe, is that it is a win for all of us because the more like the, the wider range of stories that are out there being told, the um, greater diversity of stories that are out there being told, the more opportunity we have to recognize ourselves in people who we may have previously thought of ourselves as being different to. Very true. Right. And and really, you know, this comes back to spirituality again in, in, in a weird way. I think that that's, that's the key to happiness is realizing you're, you're, you're not alone. You're connected to, we're all connected to each other. You know, no one ever really dies. The ripples of your actions will reverberate on after you're gone. You know, you, every time you touch someone in life, 
you know, it stays with them and, it, yeah. and you know, it shifts the course of the universe on an irreversible and molecular level, right? So kind of this opportunity of realizing that like, wow, that's me on screen. That's me on screen in Moonlight. Me and that kid are the same person. The circumstances were just different. And they are circumstances that I didn't choose. And when I watch Crazy Rich Asians, I go, wow, that's me. That's my story. And it's yeah. sad in a way that we have to remind ourselves that we're all the same. But I think any opportunity of dislodging this misconception that we're, that, that we're not all the same is a welcome one. And I think one of the most effective ways of doing that is telling universally relatable stories but with a specificity that that might not have previously been seen before, that can invite people into this realization that, oh shit, we're all the same. One last question, because we're out of time. One last question. Where do you see yourself five, ten years from now? What will Riz Ahmed be doing a decade from now? Where will you be living? Do you have a master plan? Um, hopefully in five years' time and in ten years' time, we're back here talking to you, bro. <laughs> Keep in touch. What, oh, what, what a lovely last dance, Everest. Oh, it brings back <laughs> a childhood memories. Thank you so much for taking time out. It was a fascinating conversation, as I knew it would be, Riz. You too. Uh, take care. Good luck with the movie and with the single. Thank you, brother. Take care, man. Bye. That was the Emmy Award winning Riz Ahmed. And let me just add this. He talked a bit about how for him, being brown, being non-white in the acting world has been both a blessing and a curse. And I happen to think that applies across the board. Even in journalism, in my own career, I'll be honest, there have been times when I've got so tired of always having to be the brown Muslim commentator who has to explain ISIS or extremism or the Middle East to my white colleagues or white critics. And I want to say, you know what, I can talk about other things. But there have also been times where it's undeniable that I've been afforded opportunities that I probably wouldn't have been afforded were it not for the fact that I stood out from the crowd, that I dispelled or subverted some lazy stereotype of theirs. So being a minority in the media or in politics or in the creative industries, yeah, it's both a blessing and a curse. And good for Riz for making these arguments, for doing these interviews, for not being afraid to stick his neck out. More power to him. And I wish we could have more actors and more artists like him. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. And Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every Thursday. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.